It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and what a few weeks it's been. We've had uh, we had that barren spell with no tournament snooker, but we've just had three events back-to-back, all very different. Uh, the World Mixed Doubles, of course, was a new event, the British Open, and then, of course, the Hong Kong Masters. And uh, we send our congratulations to the respective winners, Neil Robertson and Mink Nutcherat, for the, uh, the doubles. Of course, Ryan Day, British Open, that was an incredible uh, win for him. Kind of out of nowhere a little bit. He hadn't really shown much in the way of form prior to that, but came to the pack and uh, was not was not fancied in the final against Mark Allen, but played really well and uh, thoroughly deserved the win. And then, of course, the Hong Kong Masters, Ronnie O'Sullivan, first title of the season for him in front of a world record crowd of around 9,000 people at the Hong Kong Coliseum. We're going to discuss all three uh, events. Uh, thanks to your emails, people have been writing in. They've got a lot of views, good and bad, and mainly good, I have to say, but uh, some ideas and suggestions, all very welcome. Um, so we're going to go through those, and uh, yeah, it's good, been good to have uh, Tormund Snooker back, and, and of course we're only a few days now from uh, the Northern Ireland Open, which is coming up shortly, so let's get right into it. Uh, oh, before we get right into it, by the way, uh, if you listened last week, uh, we had Snooker Player Bingo, and I mean, it's a very niche edition, I've got to say, <laughs> even for this podcast, um, very obscure names, there's one I'd never heard of actually, but anyway, I did, someone did contact me to say Tommy Murphy, who was mentioned, uh, for the North Island professional, is still playing. He's still playing in his club and uh, he's still enjoying his snooker, so that's good to know. Let's get into it. We're going to start with the mixed doubles. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the emails out. I won't reply to every single point that's made because, you know, we'll be here all day. Uh, but I'll read them out and then uh, we will, uh, I'll, I'll have general views at the end, or if anything sort of crops up as I, as I go along. You know, it's, uh, we're, we're amongst friends. Simon Thompson. Right. Firstly, I'm not one of those bigots that complains about everything. <laughs> That's good to know, Simon. <laughs> he says, indeed, there was a lot to be praised in the concept and organisation of the event. This is the mixed doubles he's talking about. I think it's really important that female snooker players are seen on television and that the sport should be promoted further afield. And I'm not just talking geographically. It was particularly pleasing to see several notable breaks from the female players, and one in particular was superb. This is no surprise, having watched women's snooker tournaments previously. However, I think there is a fundamental issue with the doubles format if the pairings are of obviously very different standards. I must stress at this point that this is applicable to doubles, whatever the players' genders. 
Usually, the best strategy is for the weaker player to play safe so as not to risk leaving a chance from which the frame can be lost, in the hopes that the stronger partner will make the most of any chance coming their way. This often leads to protracted frames being played in a very negative manner. You see this being played out in snooker clubs night in, night out. I actually quite like this because I love quality safety. However, this was not a club game. It was televised nationally with the intention of promoting the women's game. All too often, the female players were compelled by their own judgment to make very conservative shot choices. In my opinion, this doesn't do the image of female snooker players as much good as was intended. Rebecca Kenner is a fine player, but her confidence seemed to drain to a point where she was refusing very straightforward pots. If she were playing solo, she would not hesitate as the balls would have been potted in order to win the frame. Consequently, we did not often see the standard of break building from the women that we should have. I'm sure that, as the standard of the women's games continues to improve, the format will bear fruit. But at the moment, it seemed that this event was about who had the least worst safety player, who had the least worst safety player, rather than who had the best overall pairing. A chain being only as strong as its weakest link. I hope the format does return next year, and I will watch again, and hopefully see a less risk-averse strategy from the female players. I also think the women's player cards should be extended so that women are permanently playing on the main professional tour. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Thank you, Simon. Uh, Jonathan Ford, we'll move on to his email, just to say I really enjoyed the World Mixed Doubles event that's just finished. Fresh, innovative and an intriguing format that was that was proved its worth with the team in last place before the Sunday play coming through to qualify for the final, albeit with a little help from O'Sullivan and Evans failing to secure the frame they needed. I felt the comments on the women on occasions were maybe a little patronising, but nonetheless a really enjoyable two days. It all comes down to money, but the team dynamic of the event would, I suggest, prompt louder calls for another World Team Cup or a continental team event, i.e. Europe v Asia, Great Britain v China, but time will tell. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. Uh, Joe Richards. I think the World Mixed Doubles was a strange idea. Mixed Doubles is a bit of a novelty in tennis. For example, at Wimbledon, it's the lowest watched of the whole tournament. Even men's and women's normal doubles isn't watched that much. I think having that tournament on terrestrial TV was almost a negative showcase of the sport. I don't think people will have been blown away by it. I went to the Labour Cup tennis this weekend and that was a team event and it was much and it was so much fun and the players on show were all quality and it was the best of the best. I didn't feel cheated at all. Having mixed doubles and giving the women such good airtime is honestly like WST are trying too hard to promote the women's game. That event at the weekend was not highlighting the sport at the highest level. They should have had a more varied event where the women possibly played a part in a team event but having it at as the centre of attention is just overkill. It's forcing it. I really don't see how the event can be seen as a success. It just seems so random and pointless. Even the name, World Mixed Doubles Championship, is just laughable. Come on. Joe's really getting to his stride here, isn't he? Uh, He continues, Please don't see this as me being negative about women's sports. I'm a big advocate for it. I love women's tennis, football and athletics. But this event just seemed a bit odd. I like the idea of giving two women wildcards to the tour. I don't see it as positive discrimination. I think it makes sense to give women that bit of promotion to help women snooker. But this mixed doubles tournament is just one step too far. There's more. Uh, I see it as a complete missed, wasted opportunity. I think they could have used the slot on ITV in a better way. They should have had a snooker Ryder Cup event or something and had the women involved in that. Possibly the women could have been 10 to 20% of a team event rather than making it 50% is just too extreme a move. Someone at WST should have been way more imaginative and the World Mixed Doubles idea should never have got off the ground. A very poor, rushed idea. When will Snooker have the chance to go back on ITV1 again? It could be five to ten years. Uh, Just cutting in there, it was actually a week. But anyway, uh, for the British Open semi-final. Uh, WST need to start copying other sports. Best bits, not worst bits. Absolutely clueless and amateurish, thought process. Snooker has such potential, 
But with any more ideas like this, and rather than snooker trying to promote itself to competing with world-class sports like tennis, it will be downgrading itself to competing with things like chess or badminton. WST really need to up their game. It sounds harsh, but I think a few resignations are in order, if they keep going this way. First the silly t-shirts at the Champion of Champions, and now this. What on earth were they wearing too? Weird t-shirts with ties down the front. Trying to, trying to be too cool for their own good. Snooker is a classy game, and they're making it tacky like darts with these t-shirts. Ronnie O'Sullivan and Selby Robertson all look a million dollars in a waistcoat at the World Championship. It oozes clash and prestige. They all look like they could be working at McDonald's wearing those t-shirts. Not that there's anything wrong with working at McDonald's, but you wouldn't have the CEO of Barclays Bank wearing a McDonald's t-shirt to a ball meeting, would you? Well, we, nothing like a thundering uh, polemic, and that's what we got there from Joe. And uh, we'll move on uh, to uh, Mark and John. We attended the mixed doubles at Milton Keynes at the weekend and thoroughly enjoyed the event. Our first time at this venue and it didn't disappoint. Ample free parking, plenty of places to eat, good toilet facilities and friendly staff as always. On the way in, we met Mark Selby, who kindly posed for a photo with us. And when we got inside, we had to debate which was more exciting, between the comfy cushions provided on the chairs or the fact that our favourite commentator, Dave Hendon, was sitting opposite, opposite us in the box. Our bottoms were as grateful as our ears. <laughs> what a sentence that is. Uh, anyway, uh, while the quality of the snooker wasn't the highest standard we'd ever, we'd ever seen due to the difficulties of playing every fourth shot, we were delighted to see so many young people there being inspired by the female players. We heard a young girl who was so pleased to have got an autograph from Rebecca Kenner, we thought she'd met royalty at first. We really hope many young girls might now take up the game uh, now they've seen there's a future in the sport for them. There were a lot of empty seats in the arena, however. As a commentator, and if you're allowed, maybe next time you could tell people how easy it is to turn up, park right outside for free, and have a great day out for just £30. I, I wonder if people don't realise just how easy and friendly a live snooker experience is. Let's hope the ITV viewing figures are large enough and the event will be put on again. We popped back on Monday for the British Open. Only £16 for an all-day ticket and got to watch several world champions in action. Also met Mark Williams outside and got another photo. Thank you for everyone for a great weekend. Uh, okay, and uh, I think here are a couple more on the World Mixed Doubles. Ryan Watterson, I wanted to start off by saying that I very much enjoyed this week's d a double podcast on people's favourite snooker players. Someone else mentioned, I would also class myself as another of the snooker neutrals. I've met so many of the players over the years. I think part of the beauty of snooker is how down-to-earth, friendly and approachable nearly all of the players are. I enjoyed what I saw of the recent Mixed Doubles tournament, mostly while relaxing with a beer or two in the sun on holiday. It's a hard life. And I think it's a great format for showcasing the women's game. I have no doubt it will be a regular on the calendar going forward. Should Neil and Mink both make the event next season, do you think they should be given the chance to defend their title as a pair, or will the teams be randomly drawn once again? It could be a strange situation to have the two defending champions against each other. Did this ever happen in the old doubles tournaments? Also, with the women's snooker tour now a regular qualifying route to the main tour, do you know whether... Should Ryan and Ony drop off the tour this season after the end of their two-year card? Will they immediately return to the main tour due to almost certainly being in the top four of the women's rankings? Would they have to take a season off the main tour and the cards go to those ranked the next highest? Uh, thanks for your time. Keep up the great work with the podcast. It's always one of my must-listens each week. Well, well, we'll just answer Ryan's specific questions there. Um, the, the thing about Neil and Mink, I mean, I think it would be a shame for them to be split up next year. Um, we're assuming the tournament's on, of course, and we'll, we'll come to that later, maybe. But uh, I think if they're in it, they should partner each other. Maybe you could draw the other three pairs out, but I, I think they should have the chance to to team up again. I mean, it was very a bit say about Ryan Day, um, seeming an unlikely winner, even on the morning of the final of the British Open. I mean, those two of, of the four pairings, nobody at the event thought they were going to win it because they needed to win four nil. 
they needed the next result to go their way in a match they weren't in, and then obviously they needed to win the final. But not only that, the first day, there was zero chemistry between the two of them. Uh, I think Neil probably realised that and, and actively tried to switch it up the next day. And I think as a result, Mink relaxed. She made a lovely 70-odd break. And they started to play well. And they started to enjoy the experience of being in the tournament. Uh, in terms of um, the, uh, the the Rianne and Onyi, I, I believe they can come straight back on. Um, because they'll be you know, high enough on the women's rankings. I don't know of any stipulation that you know they have to they have to sit it out for a year so I believe they can come straight back on finally man on the mixed doubles Gary Park I was really pleased that world mixed doubles was a success in so many ways and hopefully it will become an annual event and lead to accelerated development of the women's game and of those players who participated especially I do however feel that the fundamental problem with double snooker is that top players just become too strategic and defensive to make it a really successful spectacle in its own right I can recall the old Hofmeister doubles from the 80s and the feeling of watching it as a teenager that it was not as engaging or entertaining as the usual singles format in that tournament as in a number of contests last weekend small breaks often figured prominently the Reds frequently got spread around the table and it became rare for one pair to really play fluent snooker I wonder what you think of the idea of a 15 second shot clock being introduced into the doubles format as standard i.e. not just for the mixed competition but all future professional doubles play would this liberate players from the inhibitions they seem to develop through fear of leaving their opponents with an easy start and leaving their partners in difficult positions or maybe it would just compound the problems I've described above if this was introduced I would not want to see any other rules changed so no time limit to frames as in the shootout for example Again, thanks for all that you're doing for Snooker and its fans. Well, thank you, Gary, and thank you, everyone who wrote in about the mixed doubles. It seemed to me, and, and you know, social media is not the best barometer of anything, but in general, just collating the comments, it seemed it, the world mixed doubles basically got one and a half thumbs up. Not quite two, but one and a half is pretty good. How do you judge it as a success? The audiences were pretty good. I think had it been somewhere a bit more dynamic than Milton Keynes, um, I, I think that they would have been bigger if you'd had it in... We were talking about this, uh, the tournament, do you want it in a big city or actually do you want it in a bespoke venue, like a stately home or something, to really make a fuss of it? The problem is to save, obviously, production costs. It makes sense to have it bolted on to the start of the British Open, so you only have to rig the venue for TV once rather than twice, and that's totally understandable. Um, that, that's the realities of, of, of the sort of commercial world. Uh, but in terms of the event, how do you judge it a success? Well, the viewing figures were pretty good, um, and I think I can probably say this without fear or favour, discussions are very much advanced to have it again. I think it's very likely, I would say it's 90% certain it'll be on again next year. Um, I suspect in a similar format. I thought the format actually worked in terms of um, you know, going on frames because it didn't make it really competitive until the very last match. O'Sullivan and Evans had to win a couple of frames. They won one in their last match uh, against Selby and Kenner. And of course Selby and Kenner knew that. Mark Selby was not going to do Ronnie O'Sullivan a favour and, and it wouldn't have worked the other way around either. So um, yeah, overall, I think there was a kind of buzz about it. Let's put it this way, okay? BBC Radio turned up to report it for the two days. They didn't cover the British Open. You know, they, it, it created a buzz. Now, that was the first year of it. Will it create such a buzz the second year? We'll see. But I think it, um, I think what Gary Park says there is true though. Doubles is not as good as singles play. It never has been. Um, and that's a fact. The old world mixed doubles that people remember fondly was the lowest rater of all the ITV events. Um, doubles has its drawbacks, and they've been outlined by a couple of correspondents here. But as a way of promoting women's snooker on a different side of the sport, I think it worked well. Joe, who, who had the thundering polemic earlier, 
uh, clearly didn't like it. But here's the thing, OK, Joe. And Joe is a friend of the podcast because he came on t- as one of our, f- on our fans panel um, and, and goes to tournaments. But here's the thing, Joe, OK? In a way, this tournament was not aimed at you. It was it was aimed at a potential new audience. So everyone who listens to this podcast, obviously, is a, is a snooker fan, and that's that's great. But we need to think about what do people who are not listening to this podcast, who are not natural snooker fans, but maybe sport, general sports fans, what do they want? And maybe this is something that appeals to them. And actually, if, you know, the sort of the standards... Because I was looking around the, the auditorium at the British Open, and the majority of people there were male, they were white... They were mainly 40 plus, okay? We actually need other demographics to get into the sport. Now, I'm not saying that this is magically going to have people flocking through the doors, but it is different, and I think that's important. And I, for one, I was there for two days. I enjoyed it. Doubles can get dragged out. All snooping can get dragged out. But I thought it was, uh, for a first staging, I thought it was basically successful. And as I say, I'm sure it's going to come back next year. Now, we've had a few reflections on the British Open and, indeed, Milton Keynes. Now, here's the thing about Milton Keynes, Okay, Uh, The Marshall Arena there, they did sterling work, clearly, during the pandemic. One of the only reasons we were able to continue the season, the the snooker circuit for that season, was because of them. Because they have the hotel on site, so you could have a bubble, and they looked after us well, and it was a great venue for that time. The question is, now we're out of lockdown, is it any longer a great venue? I would say it's not even the venue that's the problem. It's the, the amount it's being used. I mean, there was a tournament there in February, the European Masters. Maybe this venue is overused now. I would like to see, I've said before, and I'll, I'll keep banging the drum, in terms of British events, I'd like to see them in in big cities where people live and, and where there are good transport links to get to. Milton Keynes, it's about a 10-minute taxi ride from the station. Um, but the Marshall Arena, it's not on a high street. You know, you have to know it's there. You have to, you can't, you're not going to be walking past and see a poster up and say, oh, the snooker's on, let's go to that. You have to know it's there. Um, and the crowds were not great until, I would actually say, they picked up on the Thursday night, which was a fantastic night, um, when we had Mark Selby's 147. Um, and that was a, a terrific, uh, a terrific thing. Now, if you listen to um, a podcast I did earlier this year in April, about the ITV production team. I spoke to several members of them. And uh, I spoke to our director, Lewis Hurt, who's a fantastic guy and a fantastic director. And he was saying on there, and it's become a running joke on the on the ITV coverage, um, that he, he, he was ambitious to um, direct a 147 and he never got the chance to do it and he kept missing it and he swapped shifts and someone else got one. There was a time when someone came in who was they were sort of had a had a sort of almost a training session to be a director. They got to do one. Lewis kept missing at them, and and it became a running joke. But he finally got to do it. He, did, he directed Mark Selby's Maximum, and Sean, the editor, he, unbeknownst to Lewis, was sat behind filming him because it's a big moment. It's all we basically talk about <laughs> behind the scenes. Is Lewis going to get a one four seven to direct? Is he going to get a Maximum? He got it, and Sean uh, filmed him on his phone and put it on social media. And you saw there what it meant to Lewis. And actually, it's a little window into, you know, a lot of people think the media is just all cynics and people sort of, you know, don't care about it. Listen, these people have devoted their lives to covering sport. They care passionately about what, what, what what's going out on air. And you saw his reaction. He was happier than Selby. I mean, probably a hundred times happier than Selby, actually. And, and it was fantastic. And it was a great moment. Um, and I was very happy to... From my perspective, I was fortunate to commentate on it with Stephen Hendry, which was uh, amazing, really. You know, man who's made 11 maximums himself. 
the treble and all that, which is fantastic. But anyway, um, yeah, that was that was that. Uh, I don't know how I got into that, but anyway, let, let's just read uh, let's just read uh, the emails. Frank Real said, "Do you remember my moan a year ago about the hard seats at Stadium NK? Well, it seems the authorities at Will Snooker do listen to your podcast, and especially my episodes." as I went on the opening day of the British Open this week. I must say, now, they have padding on the seats and a backrest. It definitely makes it a more comforting experience. Maybe next year they could consider creating some decent legroom and spacing the chairs apart a bit more. Maybe they could offer a seating choices like flight seats, offer premium economy or even business class, or am I dreaming too much? The only gripe I had, apart from getting cramp in my legs, <laughs> was the lack of... That's quite a big gripe, actually, isn't it? Let's be fair. But anyway, uh, was the lack of hot food available at the venue. I only saw a couple of pies. It really needs better catering, like when they host the Darts Masters in January, where there's a good variety and choice. Anyway, I'm not one to moan about anything, but uh, I'm keen to see what they provide next year, and let's hope they listen to this podcast and take notes. Oh, they listen. Don't worry about that. I know, I know for a fact. Um, <clears throat> yes, well, I mean, I thought the, the sort of facilities we, we chatted about on our fan special uh, podcast, we chatted about facilities. I thought they were pretty... Uh, rudimentary. I mean, the Q-Zone, I'm sure everyone does their best there, but, you know, it, it, it's not exactly dynamic. You know, I, 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 I likened it in my Eurosport column this week to uh, having all the excitement of standing in the bucketing rain on a Sunday morning queuing for the Megabus. I mean, it literally, it's, it's just so down at heel. And this is, this is another thing, okay? The final, uh, the first session of the final was over really quickly, okay? It was over by about half three. The, the next session, the final session, didn't start till seven, so that's three and a half hours where there is basically nothing to do. If you're a spectator, okay, have something to eat. That's not going to take three and a half hours. There's nothing put on for the spectators. Now, the day before, because we were on the main ITV channel, they had a very specific slot they had to fill. Mark Allen beat Nop and Sengham very quickly. And so the contingency was, if that one's going to happen, we would have an exhibition frame with Stephen Hendry and Ken Doherty that would be broadcast, and it would be a chance for the spectators in the arena to get more value for money, but also the TV audience as well. And it was only, only one frame. In fact, it was only six reds. But it went down a storm. Ken told all the jokes. Stephen actually played some really nice shots. It was a bit of fun uh, with, with two legends. And it occurred to me, OK, Stephen and Ken and Jimmy White, they've all been given these invitational wildcards by World Snooker Tour, OK, uh, for two years. Why not make it... And that's a con- controversial thing. Some people agree with it, some people don't. But the idea is it's to promote the sport. Okay, but Jimmy White this week had to go to Canuck to try and qualify for the Scottish Open, which is not, that's not doing anything for the sport, despite sending him to an anonymous leisure centre in Canuck. Why not make it a contingency that if you get an invitational wildcard, you have to do, as a, as part of that, you have to do promotional work at tournaments. So let's say, for example, those guys have to attend at least four finals a year. They have to do an exhibition or a Q&A. They have to work for their tour card. And, and actually, it wouldn't be that bigger deal because they will be at these events anyway. Jimmy will be at all the Home Nations finals for a start, so that's his four. Stephen and Ken are at the BBC and ITV finals, so why not actually use these guys if they're if the idea is that they promote the sport, actually get them to literally do that and they do it really well and people like to see them. So you could put an exhibition on, you could have said to everybody, okay well play's finished at half three, if you come back at half five we're going to have, you know, a 40 minute exhibition with Stephen and Ken or whoever um, I'm sure that would have been popular, and people obviously they're there to see the final. But that actually might be, make the difference between them saying, actually, did we was that value for money, and will we come back next year or not? In Hong Kong, the final was a one session affair, best of eleven at night. In the afternoon, they did an exhibition with pr- some of the pros who were still there and some local amateurs, and again, it was popular, and it was just a different side, a more relaxed side of snooker. You could even actually get 
maybe bring up, you know, we're talking about how better to promote the, the, the women in the game, get Rianne down, get her down to, to do something, you know, uh, why not? And that gives you a way of promoting the women's circuit. So I think that's something that they could definitely, uh, definitely look at in terms of adding sort of value to money. Otherwise, you're just sort of standing around, aren't you? And in Milton Keynes, there's sort of a row of restaurants, but like I say, you're not going to sit in there for three hours, you know, you're just hanging around waiting for the next session. Uh, by the way, while I think about it, I did hear a very interesting, on the women's uh, game, a very interesting suggestion. Um, I think, uh, don't, I may have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was on the Talking Snooker podcast, uh, Nick and Phil. Someone suggested that to try and sort of promote the women, why not have a sort of Pop Black style event? You know, going back to the old Pop Black, one frame. Um, and it occurs to me that actually is a good idea because you could package it, you know, half hour programs or however long. You could do interviews with the women and, and where they're from and a little bit of background. Obviously, you need a broadcaster to take it. That's always the challenge, but that's something that I think they, they could look into, definitely. Um, we're sort of skitting around lots of different things here, but anyway, uh, Alpha Bonzi, we're back to the British Open now. It says, on the eve of the British Open final, so we obviously wrote this on the Saturday, I remember on last week's podcast, you said, and we saw the low crowds for the early rounds in Milton Keynes. So my three quick questions this week are, has Milton Keynes been oversaturated with snooker? even if most of it was behind closed doors. Let's answer these one at a time. I think the answer is probably yes to that, isn't it? I think it probably has. Um, next question. What have the viewing figures been like on ITV1 for this and the doubles? Can we expect more snooker on ITV1 in the future? They were pretty good. The problem with the British Open was this match was so short. As I say, it was Mark Allen won really quickly. And, and the, the, the audience actually, <laughs> oddly enough, it seemed to grow for the exhibition just because it, the, the audience at that time, about four o'clock, was naturally expected to be bigger than at the start. That's just the way it kind of worked. So in a way, I think we need a longer match to judge it. But the, the figures for the for the doubles were pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the people seemed happy, uh, which is all you can hope for. And then uh, Alpha's final question is Alpha Bonzi, a regular correspondent. I like the fact he just comes in with questions. And no, no blather, let's just get to the point. He says, if they're unable to get China back next season, is it worth adapting the 900 format for spare weekends for the pros? Well, China, we are hopeful. Um, I was talking to someone who is going out there um, to do some work, and he was saying that he thinks it's going to start opening up early next year. Now, listen, we're in the lap of whatever. We don't know for sure. My feeling is, and I, I, this is off the top of my head, I have not spoke to anyone at World Snooker Tour about it because they're in, in limbo as well. But I suspect, I don't think there'll be any tournaments on in China this season, but I suspect if China does open up next year, we will end up going back there at the first opportunity in the new season. So I suspect the new season will start pretty early, June, July, and they may go, you know, one, two, three tournaments in a row there just to re-establish it. And that would be fantastic if that happened. I hope it does. Um, so your question, if we can't get back there, is it worth adapting the 900 format? I suspect we won't need to. Also, I think that kind of, that's that format is, that's uh, Jason Francis's thing uh, for the amateur game, it's not really anything to do with World Snooker Tour. I, I'm not sure how Jason would feel if they just took his format and used it for their own events. They, they could put other uh, sort of events on. I mentioned sort of the old PDCs before. I don't think it would be that, though. Um, finally, on the, on the British Open, Milton Keynes, Kelly Barker, what a final we've just watched and a brilliant week of British Open snooker. After the semi-finals, no one really gave Ryan much of a chance, but no two days are ever the same and he so deserved the title after such a performance. Credit to Mark Allen, too, who seems to have got his life together off the table, that can only be a positive for his game going forward. He'll be gutted, I'm sure, but good things are ahead. I think he'll be disappointed, Mark. And thank you, Kelly. I think he'll be disappointed by the fact that 
his game did start to go a bit at the end of that final. You know, it was very much to seven each. It was very much toe for toe. Ryan Day stayed positive, kept positive. Mark Allen's just started to make a few mistakes. He played brilliant snooker in the tournament. You know, he beat Trump and Selby. You know, hammered uh, Nopon Sengarm. Um, and I think a lot of people felt. I'd say most people. I'm not sure I spoke to anyone backstage who thought Ryan Day was going to win. Most people thought, everyone thought, Mark Allen was going to win. But in a final, it's a different dynamic. Because the final match is the first match where there's actually a trophy on the line. And that brings its own pressure. And Ryan Day, he's kind of in that category, isn't he? You know, 40-something like Joe Perry, like Robert Milkins, um, who we've been aware of him for a long time. And of course, he's won tournaments before. But kind of goes AWOL a bit, and you think maybe because he's getting on a bit, his best days behind him. Suddenly, he just got it all together. We didn't see much of him during the week on the TV. In fact, we didn't see anything of him until the semi-final, which was a terrible match with Robbie Williams. And I think that's because it was so bad. People thought he can't win this final. But as I say, the final's a different match. It's when it's all on the line. And Ryan Day's always been a brilliant snooker player. And, you know, his long potting in particular in the final was great. And I remember speaking to Dominic Dell years ago and he said, you know, in practice, he never misses a long pot, Ryan Day. Um, so it was a terrific, uh, a terrific day for him, all puns intended. And, uh, yeah, fantastic. Great to see someone like that who, you know, one of the great foot soldiers of the sport having his moment, he, the biggest moment of his career and quite late into his career. We move on now to the Hong Kong Masters. Um, what a spectacular four days that was, culminating in the final played in front of an audience of around 9,000 people, which beat the old live record, live attendance record by, well, sort of three times. I think it was about 3,000 before. Um, incredible atmosphere there. And also, I mean, there was one guy who was thrown out um, for being angry about something. But the crowd was so well-behaved and they cheered you know, cheered virtually every shot on. Um, you can't fault that enthusiasm. It's interesting. I think there was no alcohol sold. Um, <laughs> so there was no sort of boorish shouting out. I know some people in the UK don't like that. Um, I'm not massively uh, for or against, but I know it can be a bit intimidating for some people. We have a drinking culture in Britain. It's, it's a different culture. Um, and, you know, maybe we need to ask ourselves why we have that. And listen, I, I enjoy a drink like anybody. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying it's a bad thing to enjoy yourself, but sometimes it, it, we know it can get out of control a bit. But, but this crowd, you know, it's amazing how quiet they were at times. You know, it, as, as I said on commentary, it's amazing what little noise so many people can make because they were engrossed in the snooker and they had the big screens as well, so they could see all the action. Marco Fu's maximum was was probably the highlight of the whole tournament. Uh, Marco, of course, been away for the best part of three years. He had eye trouble and then the pandemic meant he stayed in Hong Kong, didn't play on the circuit is now on the circuit on a, on an invitational wildcard quite rightly and we saw the class of Marco Fu in that in that decider with John Higgins who you know was very gracious afterwards just to be part of that all the players people like Trump and Robertson said how how, how great the atmosphere was uh, Mark Williams of course was the late caller went out there and uh, and uh, snaffled the dough quite rightly and uh, you know it was just a terrific tournament i felt that um, conditions were were, were conducive to scoring. The cloth was very active. Uh, the pockets did seem to play generously. I think uh, they, the balls were sort of sliding in off the jaws a little bit. But so what? It was a great tournament. Um, and, you know, you, you, you do well. to Even in this cynical world we live in, you do well to f find fault with it. And our correspondents uh, have not have not felt, felt fault with it, although there's been the odd <laughs> the odd comment. Joe Richards, again, having uh, 
having stu- stuck his oar into the uh, into the mixed doubles. This is what he says about the Hong Kong Masters. Now you may say, why are these people getting two emails? But to Kelly, Kelly coming up as well later. They're 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 on our fan special, so that's like sort of it's like priority boarding. They get to uh, have as many emails as they want. So Joe says, I'm absolutely blown away by the setup at the Hong Kong Masters. That venue has to be the centrepiece of the whole tour. It's incredible. I think they should have the tour championship at the Hong Kong Coliseum. What a season-ending event that would be before the World Championship. The Hong Kong Masters was great, but it felt a bit more like an exhibition tournament with the two Hong Kong players in it, despite Marco Fu proving me wrong to some degree with his quality throughout the tournament and his amazing 147. Still think he should earn his place in it, though. Him being in it just doesn't sit right with me, even though it makes sense with it being a bit of an exhibition invitational tournament. I'm sure the Hong Kong public would rather see the top eight in the world in a season-ending tournament, though, which Marco is capable of qualifying for if he plays like this. I'm just going to cut in there. I don't agree with that. I think the Hong Kong public would like to see Marco. He's a massive name in Hong Kong. He's had his own chat show. He's a justice of the peace. He can inspect prisons. I think they'd rather see him than who are the other two players. Kyron Wilson, nothing against Kyron. I think if you polled people there, they would rather see Marco. And this really is the... The, the sort of point I've made, I've written my Eurosport column. There's nothing wrong with elitism, okay? They've already got the predictable comments, oh, let's have a ranking of it there. No, let's not have one there, because that would kill the whole thing if we had four tables in that arena. That is made for one table. We don't want 64 players turning up. We want the best of the best showcasing snooker. And we want more tournaments like this. The PDC Darts, which is also run by Matchroom, the Barry Hearn organisation, they have the World Series and they have six events and they go to places like America and Australia and New Zealand with a limited field. So it's however many players off the PDC plus the local players. And you need the local players in these events. That's how snooker got big in Thailand. Again, Matchroom went there in the 80s and they invited a then 16-year-old called James Watanar. And he, um, I think he actually won it. But anyway, he, he created huge interest. That then led to later a ranking event there. Ding was a wild card for the China Open 2005. He won it. That created the snooker boom in China. So I absolutely feel we should have more events like this. Imagine an eight-person event in New York City or Sydney or Tokyo. And you have six of the top eight plus local interest as well. That, to me, is the blueprint. doesn't mean we have fewer ranking events, but more of these events will showcase the sport. You do that by asking the audience what they want. And what the audience want is to see the best in the business playing in something that feels like it matters. Now, I think Joe's point about it being feel like an exhibition at times was true, but I don't think you could say that certainly about the final. The final was a proper snooker match. Um, and I, I think that, that, you know, the audience numbers speak for themselves. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, I, I didn't actually finish your email. He says, uh, surely the ITV series could be a bit more of a global event. The 32, then 16, and then 8 end-of-season championship race is a great idea. I almost think the venues in the UK don't do the tournaments justice. Wonder if ITV would rather have a global feel, or is it too ambitious for them? Well, it's nothing to do with ambition. It's to do with a cost because if you went to Hong Kong, it would cost a huge amount more than playing it in Britain. And secondly, if you went to Hong Kong, the time difference is no good to ITV. They went live snooker at night. They went live snooker in the evening, but it's a seven-hour time difference, so you wouldn't get any. So that's a complete non-starter. Judd Trump said the same. Let's have the tour championship there. That would not work if you have a British broadcaster as the host broadcaster. My feeling is, build up this event, maybe next year have 16 in it. Build it up to become a big, maybe Asia's leading invitation event. I know that Shanghai Masters kind of is that at the moment, but let's have more of these big events and make them big rather than 
this sort of knee-jerk reaction that we've got to take other tournaments there. Because if you do that, you're actually losing an event. <laughs> you've, you've now got the Tour Championship and not the Hong Kong Masters. So let's actually build it up and have new events and make them big and make them a big part of the circuit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I understand the sentiment behind taking the Tour Championship there. It's just a complete non-starter. If that event has been created for ITV, why would ITV want it to go to Asia where it's no good for their transmission times? It just doesn't doesn't add up. Uh, Kelly Barker, another email from Kelly. I, I emailed last week about how good the British Open was, and it was. What we've just seen in Hong Kong, though, has blown my mind at how snooker can be. Admittedly, this was just a one-off, and those fans might not turn out in such numbers for a 1-8 to eight ranking event. But maybe a ranking event should go there now, even if the last 32 were two qualifying rounds in the UK beforehand. I know COVID restrictions are still tight over there, but hopefully this will give real hope for events back in China maybe next season. Snooker needs them back. Anyway, on to the Scottish Open qualifiers now in Canuck. Oh, the glamour. <laughs> well, indeed, I know you'll be watching those, Kelly. Uh, Sam Cole... I'd like to think that Marco Fu is an avid listener to the Snooker Scene podcast and that he was inspired by my praise and good wishes for him when recently nominating him as my favourite player. However, I suspect his performance has more to do with the fact he's just quite good at the game of snooker. I couldn't be happier for him and I hope to see success for him in ranking events soon. I thought the event as a whole was a complete triumph. The venue looked fantastic. The crowds were brilliant, if a little clap-happy at times. And what a pleasant change it was not to have a certain sponsor's ghastly primary colours splattered about the arena. When discussing the event with a fellow snooker enthusiast, we wondered if we preferred to see an existing event move to the Coliseum or propose a new one. We eventually came up with the idea of an Asian Tour series, a bit like the Bet Victor series, but when events are fully restored to Asia, having a money list solely for Asian events through the season, then having a 16 or 8 player event like the Player Tour Championship for the top earners in Asian events. We decided it would be perfect in late March or April. The China Open will have to move forward a little when it returns, although maybe not as much. Uh, as the successful players can travel from Beijing to Hong Kong. It would be a great finale to the Asian events for the season and right before returning to Sheffield for the World Championship. I'd be interested to hear thoughts from yourself and fellow listeners. Well, it's a good idea, Sam. I mean, it's just the usual stuff. Who's going to pay for it? And, you know, is it, is it viable commercially? That's always the, the, the question you've got to ask. People come up with all sorts of good ideas, but ultimately someone has to pay for them. I still think a World Series-type uh, tour, six events, in the biggest cities you can find in the world... You know, would be great, but as again, someone's got to pay for them. This Hong Kong event, let's, let's, you know, pay tribute to the organisers, people who worked on the ground. It took a long time, a lot of work to get it to what we saw, you know, and, and a lot of meetings and a lot of, you know, hard yards have to be put in before you get an event like that on your television screens. So, you know, we would have to be, um, doing that on, on different continents and in different countries and different cities to, to get another big event. For example, New York City, I've already mentioned, or Tokyo, one of these places, Sydney, you know, the big iconic cities of the world. It's not, it's not, you don't just ring them up and say, we're coming next week for a snooker tournament. You know, it, it takes a lot of work. Um, but yeah, your idea for that, the Asian series, it makes sense, I guess, if, they, if they're going to sort of bracket together, um, events in Europe, why not? It'd be another kind of ranking list for Matt Hewitt, <laughs> our rankings guru to, uh, to be all over. Uh, we have another, we have another one here from Gordon Hughes. Now, this is a long email, uh, but uh, I'll do my best to read it out. As I write this, I've just finished watching the semi-final between O'Sullivan and Robertson. This was such a finely balanced contest, and Ronnie showed amazing patience and class to win five on the spin to get to that final. I woke up this morning, Saturday, just in time to watch Marco make that sublime maximum break. And it's just a testament of his class and experience 
that he could come back from basically two years away from the main tour, having only played a few competitive matches, and show us his skill in a deciding frame. I have to say I really enjoyed watching the mixed doubles, although I did feel that the pace of play... This was here, we've gone on to something else here, clearly, but anyway. Uh, although I did feel that the pace of play was a little too slow, and matches felt like they were dragging on a bit more than they would could have done. I think if it becomes a regular feature of the main tour, they should consider alternate shots rather than alternate visits, as a lot of the slow play was largely because players weren't getting to the table often enough and were generally cold, as it were, and could not get any rhythm going. Marketing could be a bit better, though, as there's been plenty of discussion about the low crowds, although perhaps that's just the venue isn't the best place to host these kind of events, not to mention the current world situation is likely going to reduce crowds still further. Just on that, uh, Gordon, I think that... Um, World Snooker Tour actually marketed the event really well. Um, I thought they did a lot of stuff, as I say, there's loads of stuff in the media. So I don't think they can be blamed for the low crowds at the doubles. I think it was more, yes, the, the venue, maybe the ticket prices, but a lot of people said actually they felt 30 quid was a bit on the steep side. I don't know. But um, anyway, let's uh, move on. Personally, I think World Snooker Tour need to start looking for more stable venues for the events they put on, at least those within the UK. Changing them up every year isn't helpful for anyone and reduces marketing for getting large crowds in. It also prevents a tournament forming a meaningful identity for itself. The UK Championship Masters and World Championship all have clear identities because they have reasonably static venues for a long time. So whenever someone says they're going to the Masters, you know immediately they're going to Ali Pali, no questions asked. I hope, the ident- I hope that identities could be formed for all other events, especially the home nations in which only the Northern Ireland Open has had one consistent venue, apart from its inaugural year. The rest have been moving around frequently. I get the booking venues is a problem, since you need clear space to set up and run the event. But this should be something that should be set in stone with multi-year contracts to ensure that an event can form an identity. Just on that, Gordon, I agree with you, actually. I think that moving them around is not helpful, because let's say you live in... Uh, well, let's say uh, Newport, OK? You went to the Welsh Open last year, re- really enjoyed it. And then you go on the calendar, you say to your significant other, oh, let's go back to the snooker. You go on there and you found it's been moved to Clandidno. So suddenly, if you want to go, you've got to travel quite a significant distance. Um, so it would be, I think, a good idea to have stable venues. Um, but here's the thing, OK? People, again, on the Hong Kong Masters, before we get into Gordon's uh, other, other points, the crowds are fantastic, but already people have been saying, well, we must have bigger venues in Britain. Well, it's completely different. That was the first event in Asia for three years. It was only on for four days. Now, if we only had one event in Britain for four days, you would get thousands of people turning up. The fact is there are 14 events in Britain this season. So the audience is naturally scattered. OK, they're going to be choosy about which events they go to because they can be because there are 14 events to choose from. Um, the market is really saturated, I suppose. If there were 14 events in Hong Kong, you wouldn't get 9,000 people at every day of them. Quite obviously, people would choose which ones to go to. Uh, anyway, we continue. In terms of the British Open, I enjoyed the matches. This is Gordon's email, by the way, uh, just, just to continue. In terms of the British Open, I enjoyed the matches in that event, and I do hope that it stays on the tour indefinitely and isn't just a filler for the continuing pandemic, which gets dropped as soon as possible. We have the shootout, which has a similar format, random draws. But it's also shot clock based. And there's definitely scope for a regular snooker tournament using the FA Cup style draws to add variety to the event. I wanted to comment on something you'd said during the commentary on the quarterfinals about the broken scoreboards, lack of additional markers on the other table, to compare it to other events, at least from what I've seen up until now. At least for me, part of the reason why there's only a second marker on a single table is because most broadcasters seem to only want to have one match table with cameras on them. If you look at the main BBC events, 
i.e. UK and world, Masters and Counties is one table. The BBC make a point of having two televised tables, meaning both tables are of the same match table standard. They have cameramen in place rather than single fixed camera or robotically controlled ones. They're both commentated and both have second markers and freeze frame technology for ball replacements. However, if you then compare it to ITV and Eurosport, there's only one single match table, the one they basically control who goes on it for the ratings during their televised coverage. Since there's only one match table, which gets the cameraman, freeze frame tech and commentary, the others all have to be done with just a zapper remote. No, free, no freeze frame tech is available and there's no second marker. Although I applaud ITV for providing some commentary coverage for the second table if the match table finishes early. In my view, all broadcasters should be required to have two televised match tables rather than one. They should be set up identically in that both matches are commentated. They have cameramen in place, a second marker and freeze frame technology. I get that costs money though because you will need additional technical staff as well as more pundits commentators to provide meaningful rotation. Well, yeah, that, that's exactly it, Gordon. That's exactly the point. It would cost more money. <laughs> and, you know, the, you know, people are on tight budgets. Um, and also, World Snooker Tour, there's nothing really to do with TV. If, they, if World Snooker wanted to put another marker on, they could. And, in fact, they did in the end on table two. They sat on an extraordinary table. It was like something out of a kind of wine bar. Um, sat away, a sort of mile away from the action because the, the zapper the referee was using kept breaking down so they thought we'll take the heat off him and put a marker in um, so they can do that it's not really anything to do with telly that's, that's their decision just to save a few quid uh, Gordon continues this is turning into a long email but anyway on the topic of scoreboards I just cannot fathom how in 2022 WST has such a shoddy scoring system that's prone to errors and crashing the scoreboard system that the tour has is something that probably suited in 2005 to 2010. But it really is just such a low-tech system and is clearly prone to problems and it feels really unacceptable in today's age that the tour hasn't improved its scoring systems. Considering the scoreboard technical issues impacts broadcasters if they occur on the main table, why don't the broadcasters look to spend money on developing a better scoring system for WST even if, even if, even if it's for their own, only for their own events? I mean, we've been watching the Hong Kong Masters and apart from the graphics sometimes being wrong... Uh, it's been pretty well handled without issues. But last season, and even part of this season, there's been so many random issues with them, and the fact they have to go to the low-tech backup during club-style scoreboards just feels like a cheapening of the professional tool and shouldn't be allowed to continue. Yes, I mean, I think people will probably agree with you that uh, it needs a bit of an upgrade, but it's not up to the broadcasters to do that. It's nothing to do with them. Will Snooker um, are the people who, you know, operate the tour, and it's up to them uh, to try and upgrade it. And, uh, you know... It, it's just a bit embarrassing, I think, when it goes down. The, I think they said in Milton Keynes, we came back from one match after the interval and it, and it wasn't working and the internet had gone down or something. But I've been, I've seen tournaments where there was one where the scoreboard tried to install uh, updates, you know, Microsoft up, updates. You know, it just looks a bit shabby. So maybe it's something that uh, that they could look into. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll use the rest of our time. Uh, not that we have a finite time, but uh, we'll use the rest of it to look at some other emails here. So, Morgan Nock. Mark Williams' last-minute trip to Hong Kong this week got me thinking about accommodation for the players for big tournaments. When the World Championship is on and a player might be there for three weeks, does WST or the WPBSA have a number of rooms reserved for players, officials and crew to stay for the whole time? Obviously, some players will be able to travel in from home, and I imagine the top players can afford to make their own arrangements. But if someone from overseas comes through who's qualifying and eventually makes the final, they're going to be in Sheffield for ages. Presumably, the demand for hotels is such, uh, and such is high with spectators, I imagine it's tough finding somewhere to stay at short notice for a reasonable price. If he's not too nosy, do Eurosport sort you and the team out with a hotel too? 
He's quite nosy, but anyway, I will answer that in, in due course. He says, P.S. I never thought I'd hear Quarry Bank Labour Club mentioned on any podcast, never mind this one, by Phil Yates, Phil Yates last week. I often went there as a child, and the venue is still there and open, although it's now called Quarry Bank Social Club rather than Labour. Not sure what the snooker situation is. Thank you, Morgan. Uh, well, certainly overseas, uh, the hotels are, they do have a, um, a sort of official hotel where you can stay. And I think in the UK events, um, you can get discounts. So they'll have an official hotel and the players can get discounts. But <laughs> often we've seen in the past, players can get cheaper rooms elsewhere. Um, sometimes in the, in the official hotel, it's, uh, sometimes, uh, the, the discounts are actually more than they could pay online. <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, yes, Eurosport do put us up. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, and very nice the hotels are too. Now, Luke Williams, this is on uh, last week's, uh, last week's, um, snooker player bingo. So very much enjoyed the latest edition of the podcast and all the previous ones too. Thank you so much for the unsolicited plug for my Patsy Hulihan book. The metaphorical £10 is in the metaphorical post. It was lovely to hear Neil Allen and yourself and Phil chatting about Patsy. Bill King's detailed thoughts on Patsy feature in the book. I'm sure it was you who told me he was a good person to contact and boy was he. Uh, as you mentioned on the pod, Bill views Patsy as the greatest player of all time, bar none. And he's seen them all. Julian obsesses that I am. You can make Julian connections to a lot of other players you featured on the bingo pod. Patsy played Tommy Murphy one year in the World Qualifiers. Another example of a match that Tommy won from a long way behind. As Patsy's conjunctivitis flared up and his eyes closed. A problem he suffered from commonly in the, pro- in the pros. Uh, Bernard Bennett becoming pro sort of blocked Patsy's route one, one year. Full story in the book. But the two later played in the world doubles together. Like Pullman, Patsy liked to drink. And in his case, light ale rather than whiskey. One of Patsy's old Deptford mates reckons he drank a crate of light ale a day, but never seemed drunk, and he could smash the sentries in. Pullman and Patsy only played once, to my knowledge, the 1981 Yamaha Organs Trophy. Patsy won 2-1 in the same tournament. It was the only other Patsy v Patsy match, Hulahan beating Fagan 2-1. This is niche stuff, but but great stuff. Uh, On another note, I've really enjoyed the variety of topics you've had lately. The non-players with the most influence on snooker was fascinating. I have a left-field suggestion. He was a player, but not a snooker player, so maybe he qualifies. Walter Lindrum, by almost completing billiards and being too darn good at it, he turned people off the game and onto snooker. Maybe this makes him the most important figure in snooker history in a funny way. Uh, finally, a bit late on this one, but I can't email you without mentioning Clive and snooker scene. What a loss to the snooker world that is coming to an end. But what a remarkable job Clive has done. Thankful of times I've dealt with him during writing and researching my book, he's been class and kindness personified. Those issues over 51 years will always be there, and how fortunate we are that the sport had an official chronicler of so many matches and stories uh, which would have been lost forever. That I've been able to write a book about a player most people never saw play, about whom there's no video footage and very little information on the World Wide Web, demonstrates just how much snooker history has been preserved forever by Snooker Scene magazine and the billiard player before it. Shout out to the long-gone and often-forgotten Richard Holt, who edited the billiard player for many years. Happy retirement, Clive. Yes, thank you very much. Nice uh, words there from you, uh, Luke. Dave Tyndall, uh, regular correspondent. He said, I really enjoyed last week's snooker player bingo episode and the mentions of Willie Thorne and Graham Miles brought to mind a memorable extract from Willie's book, Taking a Punt on My Life. Willie's well-documented gambling problems were hugely detrimental to his life and there are clearly many more bad days than good. But in Among the Tales of Woe was a memorable episode involving Graham Miles. Willie was visiting a girlfriend on the Isle of Wight in 1974, and while strolling down the street, he noticed a bookmaker offering odds for that year's series of Pot Black. Willie couldn't believe his chance to land a coup, as he already knew the outcome. 
how Pop Black was recorded. Sorry, Pop Black was pre-recorded, and by chance, Willie had gone to watch it being filmed a few months earlier. An unsuspecting bookie thought it was live. <laughs> How gullible they were back then. An unsuspecting bookie thought it was live, so in a strong field involving the likes of Ray Reardon, John Spencer and Eddie Charlton, they chalked up Grand Miles as a huge 20-to-1 outsider. But, as Willie knew, Miles had already beaten Spencer 2 in the final. Willie placed a series of bets on Miles to lift the trophy and cleaned up to the tune of £600, the equivalent of £7,000 in today's money. If only you could have left it there. Well, indeed. Uh, we'll do a couple more. Uh, Terry Richards. The latest Halcyon episode of Snooker Player Bingo resonated with me with some of the entries being the type of players I've long since been drawn to, more often than not those labelled as journeymen. I previously emailed last year about how I'd be intrigued by the admittedly unlikely prospect of a tournament of players ranked outside the top 32. I remember that, yes. Uh, an inverse of the World Grand Prix in effect. Back to Snooker Bingo got me thinking whether you could do something similar with lower-ranked players currently on the circuit. I'd be interested to hear more of those names rarely in the spotlight. The likes of Sam Craigie, Joe O'Connor, Mitchell Mann, Chow Yu-Ping, Gerald Green, Craig Stemman, Zhang Ander, Fraser Patrick and Lewis Heathcote, to name but a few. Or Louis Heathcote, isn't it? Uh, anyway, these fellows are hugely talented players in their own right who form part of a minuscule percentage of the overall snooker playing population, yet they slog away week in, week out for very little reward or recognition more often than not, in the dim and distant darkness of Table 7 or 8. Separate or maybe actually linked to this is a fascination I've long since held about the greatest achievement of a player as he's being introduced into the arena. The shootout is fertile ground for this, with such accomplishments being used every 10 minutes or so. Again, I'm drawn to the lesser lights of the sport, but not the low-hanging fruit of the likes of Nigel Bond, former World Championship runner-up, or Andy Hicks, former Indian Open, former World and Semi-Finalist, but those who may get a former Riga Open quarter-finalist or a former India Open semi-finalist. In no way am I knocking these achievements, but these may be one-offs, whereas the top players have roles of honour that would allow almost a different achievement as introduction for each session of a tournament. Just wondered whether any combination of the above could form a feature for the likes of you, Alan, Phil, and Neil, former world number three folds. <laughs> well, um, there was, a, I mean, there was one uh, tournament. It may even have been the World Championship, I can't remember now, but... Um, because the, uh, the last line is always like, you know, seven times world champion Ronnie O'Sullivan or, you know, yeah, it's always like, you know, four times world champion John Higgins. The last line traditionally of the intro is the big achievement, as you say. And there was one player who I won't mention because it's a bit embarrassing, but to this MC, doesn't do the snooker now, it's not one of the regulars, but he he, he sort of went through a few, you know, he was a quarterfinalist in last season's Welsh Open, he reached the semi-finals of the, you know, Whatever, uh, let's, let's, let's just say the Grand Prix eight years ago. And then his final line for this player was, he's a steady player. <laughs> he's a steady player. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's really real spring in his step as he walked out. He's a steady player. Well, well done. <laughs> well done on being steady. Uh, Michael Holt, but not that one. Uh, greetings from San Diego. Thank you for your bumper week of favourite player podcast. They were most enjoyable listening. I had to chirp in with my favourites, since sadly, they haven't had any mentions so far. I worked in several snooker clubs in Manchester in the 80s, sadly all of which are now long closed. Firstly, as an 18-year-old at the Marlborough, where the resident pro was Billy Kelly, before moving round the corner on Whitworth Street to the newly opened Demerara, Demerara, named after the hometown in Guyana of Henry the Owner. Nick Dyson and Eugene Hughes were the resident pros, with several good amateurs. We'd all do the rounds of the other clubs in the area whenever there was a competition and the chance to win a few quid. I have fond memories of playing at Paul Medarty's club, the Masters in Stockport, and Jeff Lomas's 
potters in Salford, where I got to pick the balls out for a youthful and ridiculously rapid Tony Drago. For a while, we all decamped to 21 Piccadilly, a huge and very glamorous club with excellent tables, and the reason for our continued interest, Alex Higgins and Jimmy White were, for a while, regular practice partners there. It was the Hurricane who had first cast his spell and totally captivated me during the 1980 Embassy World Championship. The experience of watching him play with his fierce concentration, twitches, flair and flamboyance was utterly irresistible. Although in that final against Thorburn, it proved to be his undoing as he showboated a little too far and the grinder took the trophy. Mercurial and magnificent at times, I would be glued to the telly whenever Alex was playing and always wanted him to win, especially playing his nemesis, the Nuggets, who I later grew to appreciate and emulate when trying to improve my own game. Now, don't get me wrong, Alex was a complex character and indeed could be his own and everyone else's worst enemy. Drink, drugs and a self-destructive behaviour blighted his career and indeed that of the whirlwind, who I feel certain would be a multiple world champion had he only managed to steer clear of the devil's dandruff, aka Colombian marching powder during the 90s. Now, before any lawyers write in, Jimmy himself on the Gods of Snooker spoke about this and indeed he wrote a book where he talked about it. So uh, Michael's not talking out of turn here. Uh, he says, like Alex, he carried the mantle of the people's champion and was a worthy successor as my favourite, as indeed was Ronnie when he arrived on the scene. I'm so pleased the Rocket was able to overcome his own demons and reinvent himself thanks to help from Reardon and truly realise his potential. Oh, and Peters, yes, Steve Peters, truly realised his potential. Looking at the future, I found myself drawn to Jack Bozowski. What a lovely player to watch and such a lively lad. I was greatly encouraged to see him develop over recent years and would love nothing more to see him, perhaps with the help of Ebden, become world championship. Become world champion. Well, actually, we had to, now we had Duncan Briss, Duncan, uh, yes, wrote in. Uh, he said, excellent podcast on favourite players, but have people taken leave of their senses? No mention of the genius Alex Higgins. Well, that's been, that's been righted now, Duncan. James Cook. Very entertaining podcast last week. I'm writing to try to ensure the famine doesn't follow the feast of emails you've received. Uh, well, it's still a feast, James, as you can hear. Anyway, so I have a question, which is niche, which I know you like. It's this. When do players get nicknames? The thought struck me when the evening quarterfinals of the British Open got underway. None of the four players has a nickname. Seems to be current top 16 and those who have been at the top all at one time. Ali the Captain Carter, Dominic the Spaceman Dale. But then Jing Tong doesn't have one that I'm aware of. And I think he's number six in the rankings. Won't we need one for the Masters when they have those personalised T-shirts? Will WSD mandate it? And if so, any ideas what it should be? Best I can come up with is the baby-faced assassin, as he looks about 12 years old. As I said, niche. Well, here's the thing, James. You've inadvertently uh, you sort of... Um, Incurred is the wrong word, but uh, you inadvertently brought up one of our, one of our favourite players because because Babyfaced Assassin is the nickname of Fergal O'Brien. Yes, it is because Fergal uh, it looks looks young. <laughs> it always has done. He, Fergal O'Brien is the Babyfaced Assassin. Jiaxing Tong's nickname, as far as I'm aware, is the Cyclone. I think that's what they call him. Um, and I, I think at the Masters because he played in it this season. That's what he was. That's what his icon was. In terms of getting the nickname, I mean, obviously nicknames initially were basically for exhibitions. It was so you could bill. You know, Alex Hurricane Higgins, Jimmy Whirlwin White. Over the years, it, it, sort of more nicknames have crept in. Many of them are terrible. Let's be clear about that. And, and sort of, just for the sake of having a nickname, people have been landed with them. Um, but yeah, I think the higher the rankings you go, the more likely you're going to be bestowed with one. As I say, some are terrible, some are really good. Um, the Cyclone, I think it's that's okay. 
Uh, I always worry there's going to be some terrible weather event <laughs> where, where you know, there's some terrible cyclone has killed hundreds of people and then suddenly there's Rob Walker or someone. And please welcome, the, you know, that's, yeah, it can be awkward. But anyway, uh, he's the cyclone, I think. We'll do a couple more. John Byrne, about this is a favourite player. We had to, we could, a lot of response to this. He said, uh, I could give you a boring and predictable answer, Jimmy. But he's probably been nominated by a sizable chunk of your audience. I'll leave the great man to one side. My choice for favourite player is on the face of it someone who was, in terms of playing style, temperament, etc., about as far removed from the whirlwind as it's possible to get. The man, the myth, the legend, Cliff Thorburn. When I think of Cliff, I think of three words. Style, drama and intensity. By style, I'm not actually referred to as often a traditional playing style, but rather the more sartorial style and colour he brought to the table. Roguishly and rakishly handsome, of course and always immaculately turned out and perfectly groomed, both in terms of that luxuriant hair and magnificent tash. On the subject of his intensity and ferocious will to win, little more needs to be said. One of those players that needed to be scraped off the table, occasionally in the early hours of the morning. Snooker is a curious game. You've got the thrills of big break building and dynamic attacking play at one end of the spectrum, and the equal but seemingly opposite pleasure of tactical brilliance and win-at-all-costs ingenuity at the other. Both of these aspects can be enjoyed, often simultaneously, by snooker fans. Cliff, at various times, straddled both these camps, more than capable of attacking brilliance on his day, but obviously more associated with the ferocious grind that his nickname suggests. And that leads me to the third word I associate with him, drama. Think of his grudge matches against his old nemesis, Alex Higgins. Or his one four seven, or his late-night finishes, and a face that was never anything less than expressive, intense and keen. Cliff was dramatic in the theatrical sense, like a soap opera snooker star, and he was Canadian and therefore exotic, at a time when the game was particularly parochial. He carried in him the spirit of the North American pool hustler, the grafter and the grifter. And what a generation of colourful Canadian talent that was. The inimitable Kirk Stevens, Big Bill Werbedeck, Jim Weich, and onto Alain Robidoux and Bob Chaperon. A generation that seemed to connect the cosy world of pop black to the seedy and thrilling world of the hustler. And Cliff was, by a distance, the greatest of that generation. Just a pity we don't get to enjoy Canadian talent like that anymore. Anyway, keep up the excellent work on the podcast. And if you happen to be chatting to Clive Everton, tell him how happy we snooker fans are to now have a trophy named in his honour and not before time. Well, what a wonderfully written email that was, John. And uh, Cliff Thorburn, absolutely uh, a legend. I don't think uh, there's any argument there. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, now, uh, so I'm just uh, seeing what I'm, I, I always where I've read these out before, but I don't think I've read John John Dew's email out. Congratulations on the continuation of a quality and compelling podcast. Ah, well, thank you. Again, that's possibly been sent to, to uh, the wrong person. He said, regarding the favourite player, I've tried to stick to one, but growing up, I've favoured many. Alex Higgins, the first I remember being aware of and being entranced by. His ability blended with excitement and attitude was compelling for a little kid. I've only really seen his 82 World Championship on replay. The images of holding his daughter in tears now legendary. Yet only really loving snooker from 1984. His best was still evident in patches uh, was behind him. I had a fondness for Kirk Stevens, whose exuberance and flair attracted attention, whilst the 1985 World Final, the first I remember watching live, ensured Dennis became a favourite. At the time, I was certainly in the anyone but Steve camp. His domination was annoying for a kid who wanted excitement, a reasoning which is at odds with who ultimately became... And he's my favourite player, Stephen Hendry. Stephen dominated just like Steve, if not more so. But for me, from the spiky-haired shy lad who played Willie Thorne at the Worlds through his mullet by his pack-splitting, long-potting attacking style, his manner was just so different from the Nuggets. 
he was the new kid, the brash, least in my eyes, lad, who is just a few years older than me, was so much more relatable. I cheered every victory, every one of his seven world titles, making me at odds with most friends who understand that he went for Jimmy, yet Stephen was snooker. Now a great pundit in Cocom, I'll forever, I'll be forever grateful to grow up at a time when I was able to witness his greatness in person. Special mentions must go to Matthew Stevens, who being a local lad to me was also a hero, as well as his friend and fellow green-based thriller Paul Hunter, who was still so sorely missed. Two players of the zeitgeist who helped revitalise the sport. Currently my favourite, and has been since he started on the circuit, is Neil Robertson, inspirational on and off the table, his backstory of never giving up on a dream and the sacrifices he made from leaving Ringwood to try to make a career more than once is so cathartic, moving and inspiring. As a Melbourne file with a long-standing adoration with the city and Australia and having lived in Ringwood and supported in Collingwood, just like Neil, there's little doubt as to why he might number one. Again, a player at his very best when attacking is clearly flair that attracts. Thank you very much. He said, maybe next time we could nominate our favourite referees. Oh, there's a, <laughs> there's a Pandora's box waiting to explode. Oh, there's a competitive world, the old refereeing world. Now, the 900 continues. That's uh, providing late-night entertainment on uh, Sporty Stuff TV. Um, and uh, as I record this, David Taylor, the Silver Fox, is due to play this week. And uh, Richard Radcliffe writes, What a wonderful event the 900 Snooker Legends is. An effective mix of promising young players, stalwarts of the amateur scene, former professionals and legends of the game. I didn't know about Sporty Stuff TV channel before this event. Now it's the most watched. The prize money is good for this level. All the players say it is, so it must be. And the presentation is effective. Rachel Casey is a vivacious host. Neil Folds, the best former player commentator. Lee Richardson with his enthusiasm. The tournament also benefits from having lesser-known commentators, analysers, as did the Championship League. Like Stephen Hallworth in the league, Billy Joe Castle has been excellent. Above all, the format allows every player their limelight with an amazing number of 96 players benefiting. Jason Francis has struck gold with this. Well, there we are. Yeah, I mean, listen, he's done well. And I think the top prize is um, £10,000. So for an amateur player, that really is uh, that really is fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I saw Jason on the stairs in Milton Keynes and wished him well for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, it will be here to stay. I think I've, a lot of people have enjoyed... Um, I've enjoyed watching it for sure. Uh, now, Alan McManus, uh, he sent me, and Alan bought this, I believe, Lee Richardson. We mentioned Lee Richardson there. He actually released a record, a rap record years ago, snooker rap record. And Alan sent me uh, sent me it, but I haven't worked out how to actually physically get it on the podcast. I will look into that for next week. Uh, <laughs> what else are you going to keep people coming back than a promise like that? And finally this week, our friend in Canada, David Burney. Now, David updated me on, on the latest scene in Canada, which was interesting. But the, the, I was really attracted, David, to this query that you sent in. He said, I forgot to ask you, there was a lot of debate on the stream chat at the Women's US Open and the US Nationals. Can you say the word? Now, I'm going to spell the word to, to create a bit of tension here, OK? So the word, and you'll see this because they manufacture the cloth, OK? So it's S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. Some thought it was pronounced Strachan. And some thought it was pronounced Strawn. A man of your great wealth of snooker knowledge should know the correct response. Now, you see other podcasts would, would have a, a, a sort of cliffhanger there. They'd say, well, I'm going to let you know next week. And you spend all week. It's like, who shot JR on Dallas? You have to wait all week to find out the answer. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to give the answer. It is Strawn, okay? It's, they pronounce Strawn. Not Strachan, Strawn. Um, it's one of those words that you, you, there's no reason for you to believe that's how it's pronounced. Like a lot of British words. But it's pronounced Strawn. Uh, and that's that, really. <laughs> so, um, yes, thank you, David. I hope you're well. And uh, 
thank you to everybody who has uh, written in. Which yeah, you know, we, we had a, we had a, a slight wobble, but there was no snooker happening. The fact is, people have been inspired by what they've seen, and they've been enjoying the snooker overall. Um, and I hope they continue to. So that's it from us. Um, the Northern Ireland Open, of course, is our next event. That's always a good event. Waterford Hall, great venue, start of the home nations. Um, back on the sort of British beat. Um, but yeah, the snooker circuit feels now like it's in full swing and, and there's been a lot of really good moments. I think Marco Fu's maximum, um, has to be the moment of the season so far because it was, um, just everything about it. The fact that he'd been away, the fact that he was on home soil, the crowd, just the whole atmosphere. Uh, terrific stuff. Uh, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, and, uh, and by the way, you do feel free, if you've enjoyed the podcast, to give us a rating on the Apple Podcasts and, or anywhere else where you get them, uh, just because it helps other people to find the podcast. If you've not enjoyed it, then don't do that. <laughs> Would be my advice. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Keep your thoughts coming in. It's always fascinating to read them. And uh, as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.